0: In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Miss Bradwell, apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals. But the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Hello, and welcome to Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Hedal Desai. The history of African-American law school admissions in Florida is an ugly one. In 1949, Virgil Hawkins, the director of public relations for Bethune-Cookman College, applied for admission to the University of Florida College of Law. He was both academically and professionally qualified. Hawkins and five others seeking admissions at the University of Florida's professional schools were denied admission based solely on their race. Hawkins and his group fought for nine years to racially desegregate the public state universities in Florida and appealed their case to the Florida Supreme Court, but they did not prevail. The court instead followed the separate but equal remedy and required the state to build a law school for black students at the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, known as FAMU, on the campus in Tallahassee. Ultimately, between 1948 and 1956, 85 African-American students were denied admission to University of Florida. In 1958, Hawkins withdrew his application to the University of Florida College of Law in exchange for a consent order desegregating UF's graduate and professional schools. Shortly thereafter, George Stark, an African-American Air Force veteran, was admitted to the College of Law as UF's first African-American law student. Stark was provided police protection for the first few weeks he attended law school, but continued to be harassed. He withdrew after three semesters. Stark later went on to work on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. as a prominent banker. In 2019, 61 years after he had entered the law school, the Levin College of Law awarded Stark an honorary law degree. Meanwhile, the FAMU Law School continued to operate in the Coleman Library Building on the FAMU Tallahassee campus from 1951 until 1968. Among the graduates of the original law school are former judges, congresspeople, and other dignitaries. Former State Senator Arthenia Joyner is one of the last surviving original graduates of the Tallahassee FAMU Law School. In 1966, the state's university system prohibited FAMU from accepting any further law students, and the final class from the original school graduated in 1968. All of the funding and resources, including the books from the FAMU library, were transferred to the FSU College of Law. In the year 2000, the legislature and Governor Jeb Bush authorized the reopening of the FAMU College of Law in Orlando. The enabling legislation stated that the college would be, quote, dedicated to providing opportunities for minorities to attain representation within the legal profession, proportionate to their representation in the general population, end quote. FAMU's Law School is one of six historically black colleges and universities, or HBCU, law schools, and the only one that has was open, shut down, and reopened. Today's guest is the dean of FAMU Law School, Deidre Keller. Dean Keller joined FAMU Law School in 2020 after serving as the assistant dean at Claude Pettit College of Law at Ohio Northern University and practiced intellectual property law in private practice in Atlanta. Dean Keller is a graduate of Yale University and Emory University College of Law. Welcome to Never Contemplated, Dean Keller. How are you today?
1: I'm very good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm glad that you could take a little bit of time away from recording this during the holidays, so I, I appreciate you tuning in. Let's start at the beginning, and I know a little bit about your background, that you were born in Guyana. Tell us how you ended up coming to the U.S. and what it was like to live in Guyana.
1: Sure. So my family immigrated to the U.S. in 1979. We actually immigrated to Miami, Florida, and... Uh, We're in Florida for just a short while. My grandmother has been in Florida ever since, but the rest of the family moved to New York, which is where I really grew up with uh, intermittent stays in Guyana over the summers until I was about eight years old. So those experiences were really fantastic experiences. Guyana is a very different place than New York City and uh, much more family oriented, community oriented, a place where everybody sort of knows everybody. And so it was really, honestly, I learned a lot living in New York and going home to Guyana. It was um, an experience of sort of very different cultures and acclimating to very different cultures uh, at a very young age. So definitely foundational for me.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your family life that you just referred to. uh, That it seems like it was a close knit community uh, or a close knit family, uh, especially your time in Guyana. Uh, What was your family like? What did your parents do?
1: Sure. So in Guyana, my mother actually worked for um, the Guyanese version of the IRS. That's what she did until we left in 1979. Um, When she came to the States, she sort of changed routes. She got a degree in computer information systems in the US and was a programmer uh, back in the 80s and 90s for companies like MetLife. I had no idea back then how sort of interesting it was um, to have a mom who was working in STEM. That has become clearer as I have gotten older, but my mother was the first person in my family to get a degree and she did it when I was 10 years old. So I remember that very clearly. I remember her pursuing that degree. I remember uh, how hard it was. We spent some Saturdays in computer labs with her debugging code. <laughs> so that's part of my my growing up memories is that as well. But yeah, very close-knit family. Um, even in New York, we lived in places where family was very close by, Uh, My mother has one sister and one brother, and they always lived sort of in walking distance of each other. Um, And so we grew up with their kids and um, all very close to each other. My grandmother's children and grandchildren all lived close to each other for, for the most part. And now most of us are in Florida, which is kind of funny. It just has played out that way.
0: And did you have any siblings also that moved over with you?
1: Yep. I have one sister who is just 18 months older than me. Uh, and actually, she's in Spring Hill, Florida, where the vast majority of my mom's family is now.
0: Well, what was it like going to high school in New York City?
1: Yeah, I had a kind of unusual high school experience in New York. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, uh, the Academy of Mount St. Ursula. So, I graduated in 1995. And i um, In a class of 104 students. So, you know, very small classes. Um, It was a really, I I had the opportunity to go to Bronx Science, but I had always been, I had been in Catholic school my whole life and small Catholic schools. And so I made the decision to go to Ursula because it sort of continued that tradition. I felt more comfortable in that environment. Um, Grew up in a very, very Catholic family. And so went to Ursula, like I said, 105 graduating students. Um, So teeny tiny school, really great experience. I had a really great education there. I just, it, it was sort of an odd decision to choose it over Bronx science, which is, you know, sort of everyone knows Bronx science, right? But it was the right decision for me.
0: It sounds like your mother was into science. Were there any lawyers in your family?
1: Absolutely not.
0: (laughs) No, I actually didn't grow
1: up knowing any lawyers. When I was in high school, a good friend of my mom's from Guyana got a law degree at Syracuse. And she was the first person that I actually knew in real life who was an attorney.
0: Well, how did you end up going to Yale from the Bronx?
1: Yeah. So um, the way my mom tells the story... I was like five or six years old when I told her I was going to go to Yale. And she was like, how does this kid even know about Yale? Um, so I don't know how I came to the to have Yale as my sort of dream school. But I did very young. Um, and I think it must have been from reading something because I was a – I read all the things I could put my hands on as a little kid. And reading was sort of – Our family, just in my family, everybody read all the time. So my mother was a voracious reader. We always had books, just as many books as you could possibly want about the place. And so I'm sure I must have encountered Yale in a book and decided that that's where I was going um, and announced that to my mom when I was very young. And now this is before my mother has ever gotten a degree. Like I said, no one in my family has a degree, a degree at this point. And my mother's thinking, well, okay, that's a lofty goal, <laughs> right? Um, but she never, she never disabused me of the notion that I could do it. Right. And so I kept that dream all through elementary school and high school. And my like my mom graduating from college when i was 10 was really inspirational my mom went to fordham university in uh in the bronx and um got this degree in computer information systems and it really changed sort of my mom getting that degree really had an impact on our lives right it really changed the trajectory because she was able to do a lot of things uh just economically that we had not been able to do before and so I think that really instilled in me that education could change everything and made me even more uh, committed to the crazy idea of going to Yale.
0: My daughters, I have two teenage daughters, and we watched the Gilmore Girls. And after watching the Gilmore Girls, both of them wanted to go to Ivy League schools. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something to be said a good about show. reading a good and show. uh. It's a good show. Yeah. So, well, once you get to Yale, had your parochial school, Catholic school education prepared you for uh, what I would imagine would be very competitive schooling at Yale, the classes and the just living in New Haven, Connecticut, after living in the Bronx?
1: Right. New Haven was very different. So the first time I went to visit Yale, um, I was a little bit nervous about going to New Haven at the time, so New Haven in the mid-90s uh, was very few restaurants, uh, very few places to shop. I just, it was so much smaller than any place I had ever lived. And all of that was daunting to me. And I remember my mother giving me sort of a, a pep talk, right? And she was like, It's Yale. Like, you you will deal with this. You will adapt and it will be fine. And home is only an hour and a half away. And so New Haven itself was challenging. Yale, in terms of academics, I had been pretty well prepared by my high school. Um, I will say the one thing that I had, the one major adjustment I had to make was about managing my time well and good study habits. I did not have good study habits in high school. Um, I had been on the honors track and still had sort of skated by not really needing to figure out how to study or how to plan my time so that I could get, you know, difficult projects done, etc. And so I learned that very early on in my time at Yale um, that I was going to have to figure out how to do those things how to really sort of plan my schedule, make sure that I was getting enough study time in, make sure that I was planning ahead for big papers and projects. And so that was kind of the big adjustment for me was figuring out those time management things. But in terms of the academics, I was very well prepared by Ursula.
0: What did you end up majoring in? Science or something else? Unscience. <laughs> I was an English science. and sociology major. science Okay. <laughs> yes. English and sociology. And at that point, did you know you wanted to go to law school? I was still thinking about it. I had English
1: professors who recommended that I go on and get a PhD. I loved studying literature. Um, it was, you know, really intellectually engaging for me. And I just, I mentioned before, I had always been a voracious reader. so. That was sort of my comfortable spot. I had been thinking about law school. Well, I had been encouraged to think about law school since I was very little, right? I mean, I remember my grandmother saying to me when I was four years old, you love to ask questions. You should be a lawyer.
0: (laughs) And She didn't say you like to argue you should be a lawyer. That's what I got. (laughs) That came later. That came later.
1: (laughs) But I, like I said before, I didn't really know any lawyers. And so when I graduated from college... I still didn't really have a good sense of what lawyers did day to day. I ended up going to work in law firms. So I was a secretary and then a paralegal for four years before I went to law school.
0: Was this in New Haven? No,
1: this was in Atlanta. And so when I graduated, I moved to Atlanta and worked in law firms for four years doing um, administrative work. It was really a good education for me about what being a lawyer looked like day to day.
0: So you graduated from Yale, you you moved to Atlanta, you worked for a while. You have, what, six kids, is that right?
1: I have six children now, but um, by the time I went to law school, I had three children. And then I had one while I was in law school.
0: And what was that like being not just a mother, but a new mother in law school?
1: Yeah, it was... I always tell people it was challenging, but I also think for me, it was very grounding. Um, So I didn't get caught up in a lot of the competition of law school. I kind of treated law school like a job. So uh, when I started law school, my son, who is himself now a father, was starting pre-K. And literally the day I started law school, he started pre-K. And so I would take him to school in the morning and then go to law school and be there until 5.30 or 6 in the evening, and then go home. And I was mom, right? And the nice thing about that was it kept me focused on what was important rather than focused on, you know, am I the first person in the class? Do I have a perfect GPA? Like, I just didn't worry about that stuff because I had little kids at home who needed me to be there for them and be present in their lives. And that just was, it kept me really um, grounded in sort of what matters, right?
0: So uh, you went to Emory Law School in Atlanta and then you graduated and you, I believe you worked for a few years in private practice. Yeah.
1: Four years, yep. I was an IP
0: lawyer. So you were doing intellectual property law, which is a little bit science oriented. Did you? It is. Is that because of your mom? Or did you just, how did you fall into IP?
1: Yeah, so it's sort of funny. I, I, like I mentioned, I had worked in law firms. And some of the work that I did before I went to law school was for and with small businesses. And so I had gotten sort of a glimpse at trademark practice from the vantage point of um, corporate law. Mergers and acquisitions and startup companies, right? And I found it really interesting. Trademark law is like highly technical stuff, and so I thought, well, that could be that could be a fun area to practice. So before I ever went to law school, I kind of had trademark law on my mind. And while in law school, I took some IP classes. Really enjoyed them. Um, found the the study of intellectual property law, very interesting and complex and intellectually challenging. And some of that was about the science, right? Um, And so I just enjoyed it. And so when I was looking for jobs as a lawyer, funny enough, people would ask, well, do you know what sort of lawyer you want to be? And I would say, well, I know what sort of lawyer I don't want to be. I don't, I don't want to do anything where my clients call me crying. Um, so that excluded, in my mind, family law, criminal law, immigration. I don't want to do any of that.
0: And um, employment, <laughs> I have <right>. to say.
1: <laughs> As it happens, uh, clients will still call you crying when you're an IP lawyer. I did not know that at the time. But so, so when I was doing summer um, internships, I did them in intellectual property groups at the firms that I interned with really enjoyed the work. And so that's how I ended up in an IP group. But part of what I did, in fact, my very first case was a patent litigation matter. And I will never forget it because very quickly became clear that my science um, was going to need some tooling up, right? I hadn't taken chemistry since sophomore year in high school. And my very first case is about a hydrophilic polymer right like the the technology in question is a hydrophilic polymer thankfully a very good friend my best friend from undergrad is a chemical engineer and so I would call her and say explain these things to me <laughs> and she would and so um so yes there definitely was some science in my practice and that but it was part of what made practicing intellectual property law fun right was in doing those cases, you really had to learn that stuff, and so there was always a new challenge, right? A new intellectual challenge.
0: I want to ask you about what it was like to work at a firm, a, a firm. I think it's a relatively mid-sized firm, right, uh, that you worked at uh, in Atlanta, and what the practice of law was like compared to perhaps, well, I guess you were living there. So what was it like to, to practice law in Atlanta, in another big city?
1: Yeah, it's a great city to practice law in. Um, it is a big city, but it's also a manageably sized city, especially if you're practicing in an area like IP. It doesn't take long to sort of get to know everyone who is practicing in that same space, Um and it's a pretty collegial place to practice law, right? Of course, our work is always adversarial, but the IP bar, those folks kind of all know each other. They're going to see each other on multiple cases over time. And so for the most part, the practice is pretty um, pretty collegial. People get along with each other pretty well and, you know, whether the person is your opponent on this matter or your co counsel on the next matter, which happens, uh, you form really good and uh, collegial relationships.
0: Well, let's switch gears. And so you practice for four years and then you end up going to start teaching at, at a law school in basically rural Ohio. Absolutely um, rural Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> um, going from, again, a big city to a small, a small, Smaller city, a smaller town, actually. A
1: village. Ada, Ohio is a village.
0: Ada. And so tell us how you ended up moving, and I'm assuming you moved your entire family. I did. From Atlanta to Ohio, but also you left the practice of law and went into academia. So I don't know where you want to start, but which came first? The need to move or the need to leave the practice?
1: Right. So I decided to leave the practice because, so I was practicing at that time at Seifert Shaw, which is a relatively big Chicago-based firm. So the office in Atlanta is pretty small, or it was then when I was there. Um, but the firm itself is over 750 lawyers, so relatively large firm. And so I was, I was clocking big firm hours. And by this time, I have four kids who are 10 and younger. And i um, I have a number of childcare personnel <laughs> that I am employing, right? Who basically are caring for my children. And at some point, I, I came to the decision that I wanted to be more present in my children's lives um, and able to be at their events, able to be at their soccer games and their, you know, honors uh, events, et cetera. And so that was kind of what um, made me decide to leave the practice of law was I really – I didn't see a path forward that could give me the space to do the things I wanted to do as a mother, right? And so I always tell people I left practice to go into academia. I don't work any less. I've never worked any less. But now I can – or – at least when I was teaching, I could schedule my work around my life. Whereas when I was practicing law, I was trying to schedule my life around my work. And so it was really for the purpose of centering my children in my life. And it, it definitely provided the opportunity to do that. So as I was on the tenure track and teaching, and uh, I was able to go to all of the soccer, football, baseball, basketball, you name it, my children played it, right? Softball. Um, I was able to go to all of those games. I was able to be there for, you know, Girl Scouts, campouts, etc. Not outside, I don't sleep outside, but you know, those kinds of things. Um, And that was great. It was exactly why I made the transition. And at the same time, I could be really successful in my academic career. So, and I could, you know, write about and think about things that I found interesting.
0: What was the first class that you ever taught? I
1: taught property, first year property, six hours of first year property (laughs) in my first year of teaching. That year, I also taught uh, lawn literature, a seminar, which was wonderful i still remember those students to this day you never forget your first class of students um and i taught internet law in the spring of that year
0: and what year was that
1: oh 2010
0: it's 2010 and so at this point uh, when i went to when i went to law school there was no internet law <laughs> <laughs> same same <laughs> So uh, I want to talk about your law and literature class. Uh, What kind of books or stories did you talk about or did you make your students read? Sure. So that was such
1: a great class because students come into it sort of not really knowing what to expect, right? And we read all manner of things, everything from A Jury of Her Peers, which is a wonderful short story, written... Uh, in during the movement for suffrage, right, by a woman who was a journalist and in her sort of other endeavors writing about the suffragist movement. So we always started with a jury of her peers. I've taught law and literature several, several times now. I always start with a jury of her peers. Over the course of the semester, we also read things like uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which if you have not read, you absolutely should. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing uh, in the American canon. And for years, I taught The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. In the last couple of years that I taught law and literature, I switched from The Bluest Eye to Home, also by Morrison. Uh, The Bluest Eye is Morrison's first novel. And For it's still my favorite novel to read and teach of hers, but Home is more recent, it was written in 2012, and it is, um, it's a much more manageable novel to read and talk about in one two hour class session. It's very hard to do the bluest eye justice in one two hour session, so Home is shorter. And it's still Morrison, so it's still hard to get into a two-hour session, <laughs> but, but you can get more into the weeds in home in two hours than you can in the bluest eye. So.
0: And you end up becoming the assistant dean there. How did you make the leap from just teaching to um, being part of the administration?
1: Yeah, so that's such an interesting question because I will tell you it was not intentional. Um, I did not come to academia thinking that I would make that jump. And the way that it happened is I was always (laughs) sort of around when people needed things. So, you know, I was sitting in my office one day and the dean in my first year and the dean came by and was like, I need someone to sit on the personnel committee, which is the hiring committee. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. Um, And over the years, I built up so many of those experiences that I basically had been on all of the committees, right? Which is to say that I had seen the needs of the college from, you know, a plethora of standpoints. And then I had worked on an international studies project and been sort of the main administrator on that project. And so I was building up these administrative experiences not really with an eye towards joining the administration, but really just mostly out of curiosity, honestly, right? I am, as a general rule, someone who likes to understand how things work, right? And so those administrative responsibilities gave me an opportunity to see how the college worked and how the university, the larger university worked. And so then... A year after I was tenured, uh, we were in need of an associate dean for academic affairs, and I sort of reluctantly took it on, thinking, oh, I'll do this year, and then you know they'll hire someone, and I'll go back to the faculty. But I really loved it. I loved the work, because from that seat, I could have an impact on a broader array of students than I could from my classroom. And in particular, I could be more impactful with vulnerable students, with students who were struggling in law school for whatever reason. And I found that part of the job to be very fulfilling. So that's kind of how I ended up committing to the administrative route.
0: Well, let's talk about the students. Uh, So I know that you have now been in, in academia for almost... 15 years. yeah, how have the students changed from when you first started teaching to now?
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting question.
0: I I asked this question to both Dean Rosenberry and to De- the Dean O'Connor, so
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting one. So I, the thing that I will say is I think that there is much more demand for sort of instantaneous solutions from students than there used to be. And I blame the internet, right?
0: (laughs) I mean, I think we just are- I think we can also blame more specifically social media. Yes. Not just the internet.
1: Exactly. No, absolutely. And so I think that there is, we live in this culture now where there's sort of this expectation that if I say this is a problem, it's going to be fixed immediately. And it's going to be fixed in the way that I would like. And that's just not feasible, right? Um, And so that has been and continues to be a challenge. And I think, honestly, I think some of that was exacerbated over COVID because during COVID, the folks sort of got into the habit of trying to address these issues by sending emails, right, or showing up on Zoom and posting in the chat. And so that habit tends in my experience to lead to less cordial communications people just are nicer when they have to talk to each other in person <laughs> and so i think that that i i am hopeful that we will come out of that habit right and start again to encounter each other in real life and in ways that build community rather than you know, tend towards adversarial interactions.
0: Well, I want to switch gears and talk about uh, your current community. You're now the dean of FAMU Law School. Let's talk about the history of the law school and how it ended up in Orlando. Absolutely.
1: It's a really interesting story. And I'm not aware of a similar story, not just in Florida. I'm not aware of a similar story in the country, right? So Famine Law School started back in the 50s in Tallahassee, and it began as the result of litigation uh, by Virgil Hawkins. So Virgil Hawkins was a Black man who applied to the University of Florida and was denied based on his race. Just a little digression here. At that time, Florida and a bunch of other states were sending any student who wanted to go to law school to Howard. And so they would pay for people to go to Howard, right, rather than provide a, a facility in the state. Well, so the litigation- Well,
0: can I just stop you there for, sure. for one second and let's, let's talk about Howard. So FAMU is a historically black college and university. It's HBCU. Yes. And the law school is one of six HBCU law schools. Is that correct? Correct. And Howard was the first the first, one. Yes. Correct.
1: Yes. So Howard was the first. And now it is Howard, North Carolina Central, University of DC, uh, Southern University Law Center in Baton Rouge, Texas Southern, and us, Florida A&M University. So we are the, the six HBCU law schools in the country. And together, we graduate more than 20 of the Black 20% of the black JDs graduated every year. So six out of 200 schools. So that's the, the story of HBCU law schools in a very small nutshell. I just wanted to get that background. For- Absolutely. So to get back to the history of FAMU. So started in Tallahassee at the main campus in 1951. And its first class entered in 1951. So then for 17 years, there was a law school at Florida A&M University's main campus in Tallahassee. Over the period of that time, they graduated 57 students. And what happened is in 1966, the state of Florida was required to integrate its higher ed facilities. And so when that requirement came down, the legislature decided. Well, if we have to integrate our higher ed facilities, then FAMU doesn't need a law school. We'll take the law school, the funding, and the books, et cetera, from FAMU and start a law school at Florida State. And so that's how Florida State University initially got
0: a law school. Can I can I just stop you right there? Uh, sure. Part of that defunding of FAMU law school was also in part because the students at FAMU were very involved in the civil rights movement, that they retaliated against FAMU by not letting them admit any more students and eventually defunding the school. Do you know if that's true or not?
1: So I can tell you what I do know is true. Can you talk about it? The students at FAMU were very involved in civil rights And in protesting for various things during that period of time, both at the undergrad and the law school, it wasn't just the law school being provocateurs, the students at FAMU writ large were engaged in the movement. And so there were definitely, now the thing I can't tell you is whether correlation is causation, right? I have not, I'm sure that someone uh, could dig up some documentary evidence <laughs> that would confirm that. But I have not done that.
0: Uh, and again, that's just something I've heard. I've never confirmed that or, or heard that's true. But it, it all happened around the same time. It did. yes. Yeah, so it was 1966
1: that the legislature decided to uh, defund the law school at FAMU. And in 1968, the law school in Tallahassee graduated what would have been its last class, and so then for thirty years, Florida A and M University fought to get a law school back. And in two thousand, Jeb Bush signed a piece of legislation that authorized the opening of the new law school at FAMU. At the same, the way that that happened is an interesting story in political alliance, right? Because the way that it happened is Florida International University also wanted a law school, uh, wanted to be a Hispanic-serving institution. And so those two institutions came together and lobbied together for law schools at FAMU and FIU. And that's how it happened. So the legislation that authorized the law school at FAMU also authorized a law school at FIU. That was in 2000, as I mentioned. And then two years later, the College of Law opened its doors in Orlando. Now, of course, that means we are 240 miles from what I refer to as our mothership. And the reason for that is that the legislature in 2000 said well the law school can't be in Tallahassee because Tallahassee has a law school which was of course Florida State right and so that's so the the decision was made that the law school would have to be on the I-4 corridor and a number of cities bid basically for the law school and Orlando won that bid and that's how we ended up in Orlando So now the law school is located in Paramore, a historically black community in Orlando.
0: And so we talked about this a little bit before the interview. Uh, Paramore is also where George Stark grew up. And Mr. Stark was, he was the first African American who was admitted into the UF law school uh, when he entered the school and was harassed to the point where he never graduated. Um, And we talked with, Dean Rosenberry uh, previously, and in 2019, 61 years after he first started at UF, he was given an honorary degree. Well, um, his mother was a librarian in Paramore at the at the high school, Jones High School. I don't know if it's ironic or act purposeful that the the building now where FAMU Law School is, is where he grew up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the neighborhood itself? Sure.
1: So yeah, Paramore is, um, it's a place, it's, I did not know this story about Mr. Stark, but I'm not surprised to hear it because going back to, you know, the middle of the nineteen of the 20th century, lots of middle-class Black folks lived in Paramore. So when you describe his family as, you know, his dad was a doctor, his mother worked at the high school, um that was sort of what Paramore was, right? It was the place where the first Black mail carrier in Orlando built a house, right? So it was a Black middle-class neighborhood. It has since been through some things, including the development of I-4, which sort of split Paramore in two, right? That happened, incidentally, the interstate, not just I-4, but the development of interstates split a lot of Black neighborhoods in a lot of places. Uh, that's a similar story happened in Atlanta in a historical Black neighborhood.
0: So, and in Miami as well.
1: Yeah, all over the place. And so so Paramore is today uh, less middle class than it was in the 20th century. And um, I do think it is it's a great place for a college of law and especially for an HBCU college of law. And we try to provide things the surrounding community may need and also opportunities for our students to serve the community. So <clears throat> one way that we're doing that right now is we are about to launch next month an economic justice clinic and some of the work that that clinic will do is helping residents in Paramore start small businesses, for example. We're going to do some heirs property work in and around Paramore and in other parts of the state. And so I'm really excited about that. It's an opportunity for our students to really be of service to the community that we sit in.
0: I think we put the, the cart before the horse a little bit, and let and let's talk about the students that are there at, at FAMU Law School. Um, how many sure. students are at the school?
1: We are just under four hundred now.
0: And what is the makeup of the school? I know a lot of people think it's just it's just open to African American students, but but that the makeup not. is is very diverse, right?
1: It is FAMU College of Law is regularly one of the most diverse law schools in the country. We serve a population that's about. 40, anywhere between 40 and 50% Black, and then about 25 to 30% Latinx, and about 25, 20 to 25% White. So, very diverse student body, body always has been.
0: What is the ratio between Florida residents and, and out of state people?
1: About 70, anywhere between 70 and 75% of our students are Florida residents in any given year.
0: And what is the, I guess, I think it, because it is a, a newer law school, it has has special programs. I know they have classes at night. What is the background of uh, the ages and the, the makeup sure, of the absolutely. class?
1: So, yes, we do have a part-time program. We have always had a part-time program. You know, our legislative mandate is to help to diversify the profession in Florida. And so we see as an important and integral part of that serving Working adults. Uh, our students range in age from 21 to, I believe, we have a 66 year old student in this year's incoming class. Um, and that range isn't unusual for us. We serve a number of students who are second career folks, right? We have a couple of MDs pursue, who have pursued or are pursuing JDs with us. And so our part time program really serves working adults who are now looking for that JD credential.
0: So it sounds like you have uh, at least part of your student population are non-traditional students, not straight out of college. And I know the other deans didn't really want to talk about this, but but everyone talks about rankings and admissions and that kind of thing. What, what does it take to get into FAMU Law School?
1: Yeah, so our I'll tell you what our medians are. Our median GPA for this year's incoming class was a 3.41, median LSAT of 150. Right? We are an access institution. We take that very seriously. We want to make sure that even as we work to move the credential, we are serving students who might not have the opportunity to pursue a JD elsewhere.
0: I wonder if you could talk to I know there's an international I don't know if it's a clinic or a program.
1: We do have um, faculty members who are focused on international law. And so if you want to – if you're a student who wants to focus your studies on international law, you will be able to do that at FAMU. So we have enough courses that you can really get your feet wet, if you will, in international law, whether that's international business or – human rights or immigration or right so we have a full panoply of international law courses Uh, in addition to that i I always tell people you can do almost anything from FAMU law that you want to do we have you know seven or i'm sorry 11 sitting judges right now we're very proud of that Um, many of our students leave famu and go into public service so start their careers at prosecutor's offices or public defender's offices and the like. And that is tends to uh, be a good way to start out if you are looking to be a judge someday. And so we're, we're pretty um, proud of the folks we have sitting on the bench for our 20-year-old law school to have 11 sitting judges. We're pretty happy about that. But I also have Grads who are, or the college also has grads who are practicing tax law, who are practicing real estate law, who are practicing family law, you name it, we can provide you the education you need to pursue the path of your choice.
0: What are some of the challenges that you have as a dean in getting good faculty to come to family law school but also to c- come to central florida you know from other places as well as i mean it sounds like most of the students are from or around florida but what about faculty
1: you know that's such an interesting question orlando is actually a great city we we don't have problem too many problems attracting people to come to orlando and now you have to keep in mind that i came i came from a rural law school right Much harder to attract people to come to eight Ohio. (laughs) So maybe maybe this is like, it's all relative, right? My perspective is a little skewed by the fact that I served an institution out in the middle of the corn for 10 years, right? And so much easier to attract faculty and students um, to Central Florida. There is, you know, a thriving legal community, not to mention lots to do around the place in Orlando. And so we don't have too much trouble attracting attracting folks. The, the big challenges for us tend to be around bar pass and most access institutions have bar pass challenges, right? And so that is a challenge on the recruiting front, regardless of whether you're talking about students or faculty, because of course, it's an existential challenge, right? Bar pass is part of what um, our accreditors are really focused on. Of course, students really focus on it, and faculty members do as well, because teaching at an access institution presents some challenges you might not have at a different kind of institution, right? Your students are going to need, so we serve a population that's largely first-generation lawyers, and they need a little more mentorship, right? A little more advising. Um, They need some more information about the breadth of what you can do with a JD, and so all of that is going to be part of your faculty your faculty duties, right? And you may not have those same kinds of demands at a, an institution that doesn't serve first-generation lawyers.
0: Well, you've mentioned the term access. What is access and what kind of universities or access programs?
1: Sure. So as a general rule, access institutions are those that are looking to provide opportunities for students who might not have opportunities at other places, right? So if you look at FAMUs, um, especially our median LSAT, it is lower than most. Look at the other SUS law schools. They are all more than 10 points above us, 10 points or more above us in terms of LSAT, right? A 150 LSAT, that can be a barrier to entry for a student. Access institutions serve those students, right? And what that means, the way that we think about it, is in order to diversify the profession, you have to serve those students. Because here's what we know. Only about 5% of practicing lawyers in America are Black. That number has been sort of stuck there since the 80s, right? And so to change that, to change that landscape, We have to think more broadly about who we can support to success on the bar and in the profession. And so that's what I mean when I say an access institution. It's an institution that intentionally serves students that may not get into other, you know, higher ranked institutions, right? And so we don't really play the ranking game. FAMU law doesn't really play that game. That isn't to say we don't participate. I want to be really clear. We do participate (laughs) in the survey, in the U.S. News survey. But it's not, rankings are not, we're not um, chasing those.
0: Well, it sounds like you have a difficult balance in that you want to serve a certain portion of the community that may not otherwise just get a break and the opportunity to kind of lift themselves up, but you also want to improve the bar for those, you know, for, for family law school. So yes. it sounds like you you have a, a difficult task there um, in the dean. What What is something that you would like to see improved in the next five years at the law school?
1: Something that I want to see improved. I w- My big focus is on making sure we have the resources at our disposal to meet our students where they are, Right. And so that is as you might imagine a multifaceted project, right? It means I need resources to attract high-performing students. It also means I need resources to invest, right, in some of the students that we are we know we're accepting and sort of taking a chance on, right? I want to get to the point where we have really small legal writing sections, for example. Because what we know is that students are coming to us with underdeveloped writing skills. Our profession requires very sophisticated writing skills and sophisticated technical writing skills, right? And so if we can have really small legal writing sections, then students can do some of that work to get their basic writing skills up to the appropriate level and then develop into good technical writers because they're getting the feedback and attention that you can only get when your professor is teaching 15 students at a time, right? And so that's really the project in my mind. The thing that I would like to move the needle on is making sure that the college has the resources it needs to meet our students where they are.
0: And we have a num- number of listeners, hopefully, the, from the Central Florida legal area. What can local attorneys do to help FAMU Law School and the law students? Either help them become integrated into the community or help the law school better at, better its student experience?
1: Oh, there's a ton that local lawyers can do. The college has uh, started a mentorship program. Almost three years ago, we're in our third academic year of that. We're always looking for mentors for our students. So, it's so important for students to have practicing lawyers that they can talk to um, about what it's like to practice, right? Again, we serve a population that's mostly first generation law students that can talk to them about how you make connections within the legal community, right? And a plethora of other topics. So mentorship at at the top of my list. And then, of course, we're always looking for folks to endow scholarships. We've had some good success with that lately. So that's always a partnership that we're interested in pursuing. And the third thing that I would say is really just taking a good look at our students in terms of opportunities right? In terms of hiring opportunities, because the, you'll, you'll be surprised. You'll be pleasantly surprised by the quality of student that you find at FAMU.
0: Well, I know that you are visiting your family right now. Um, and But before we leave, I'd like to ask you, if you had one piece of advice to a graduating student or a new attorney, what would it be?
1: It's the piece of advice I give my students on day one. Which is that in our profession, all you have is your reputation. That's it. That is your calling card, right? And so protect it, right? Make sure that the professional you are presenting in any given set of circumstances is the person that you want to be known as because that reputation, it's all we've got as lawyers, Right. And so I always tell my first day, first day in orientation, I tell my students, these are your first, your classmates are your first contacts in the profession and that you can make a positive impression or a negative impression. Right. Be guarded about your reputation because it it will make or break you in our profession.
0: Thank you, Dean Keller, so much for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Same to you. Thank you again for having me. Thanks again. I want to thank Rebecca Bandy, Mitchell Ramsey, Katie Young, and Clay Shaw for keeping us on the air. You can find links to FAMU Law School and the history of George Stark under the links of this podcast.